0: Welcome to the Sinica Podcast, with weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Subchina, SupChina is simply the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to SupChina's original stories and columns on our website. Sign up for SupChina access, and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, From the latest on the trade war to the ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region, we're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Let me start today with a confession for many years, I had a mild but definitely discernible aversion to the whole "shin gun idea. xin to search for, to seek, Gen, uh, roots, so seeking roots. At least when I first started going to China, it, it's what everyone in China assumed any overseas Chinese person they encountered was doing there in the first place. Uh, this whole exercise of Chinese people, you know, from the diaspora... Often, many generations removed from China, were going back to China to discover their ancestry, to meet living relatives, to you know see the old village or whatever. In retrospect, now that I, I no longer have that aversion, I can see that it grew out of a couple of things. One minor piece of it was a suspicion that I harbored uh, that you know encouraging or even applauding people in this whole roots-seeking exercise in China would subtly undermine. This right that a lot of, of Asian Americans were fighting for, that this idea that they should be able to to demand to be seen as having no ancestral connections at all, to be as American or as Canadian or, or, or whatever as, as anyone else, as an Irish guy or a German guy or whatever. Uh, but actually, that whole fight was never something I was, you know, I didn't have a ton of skin in it. I wasn't particularly committed to it. And, and thinking back on why it bugged me when people asked me if I'd come to China to do the root seeking thing it was that it implied somehow that I had lost connection with my own roots. And and ever since I was pretty young, I, I prided myself on knowing quite a bit about my family history, of being familiar enough with the historical events in the lives of my parents, my grandparents, and even you know back a few more generations, so I could slot the stories uh, that they told me into my knowledge of China's modern history uh, and just to give it context. And I guess for me personally, the assumption that I was in China to the to search for my roots just kind of rubbed me wrong. I, I was told myself that even if I had no blood connections to China whatsoever, I would have just found it to be the most interesting thing happening in my lifetime, and I still would have wanted front row seat to it. Uh, I would have found my way to China. It was just independently compelling. I, I still actually kind of think that. And and when it came to other people, I often thought I smelled something ignoble in root seeking. I was conjuring up these scenes of the triumphant return of someone to their village, their ancestral village. These privileged and well-heeled denizens of the first world, exaggeratedly signaling their foreignness while deigning to, to walk amongst the unwashed, beaming their big, orthodontically corrected white smiles and dispensing little gifts from civilization, offering fulsome and very condescending praise of the quaint and rustic lives of their distant cousins. But over the years, I changed my mind about this. Part of it was that China had changed, and part of it was that the U.S. had changed. And another part, which is salient to today's discussions, uh, is that just before I left China three years ago, I heard about a very cool little startup founded by a lawyer from the Netherlands uh, who had been working in Beijing. His own ancestors had come from southern China long ago, gone to Indonesia, and he'd been curious about his roots in, in Fujian. And so he decided to learn all he could about his ancestry, and he found out quite a bit, it turns out. And the very keen interest that other people of Chinese descent consistently showed in his own genealogical explorations gave him this idea to start this company, My China Roots. They're still going strong today, and we've finally gotten around to getting this show together. The founder's name is Huihan Li. He joins us from Seneca East in Beijing. Huihan, welcome, at last, to Seneca. Hey,
1: guys. It's really good to be here.
0: Yeah. Huihan, you're joined by two of your colleagues as well. You've got Chrislyn Chu, who's there in Beijing, as well as Clotilda Yap, who joins us from London. So welcome, Chrislyn, and uh, welcome, Clotilda. Thanks for
2: having us. Hi, Kaiser. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I'm really delighted we could finally make this happen. Um, so let's start off with each of you and uh, what it was that first got you interested in genealogy more broadly, and then in your own ancestry more specifically, enough that you know you wanted to start, in Kuihan's case, or join uh, a company that was doing specifically this kind of work. So what lit the fire for each of you?
1: Well, I think you captured the essence of my story quite well. I mean, I started with genealogy, I guess, long before I knew the word genealogy itself. I was just always really interested in stories. And I always used to ask my grandfather and my father about stories of our family history in Indonesia, but they were never able to tell me about China because that was just too long ago. It was seven generations ago, as I later found out. So as I grew up in my teens in Holland, in a very Dutch countryside environment, I just started being increasingly curious about China and what the country would be like and you know questions about our own family if we're chinese then why don't we speak chinese what does it mean to be chinese and why do we basically lose all the rituals and cultural customs that are chinese so those questions just uh, stuck in my mind and it was only after i finished my law degree that i thought okay this is really the time to go if ever So I gave myself six months and I just went. I just started studying the language, which was, of course, the first key goal and obstacle. Because I think, uh, especially uh, growing up in the West, if you don't speak Chinese, and I think this resonates with a lot of overseas Chinese, whenever I would walk into a Chinese restaurant and waiters would start speaking Chinese to me and I wouldn't be able to respond in Chinese, they just give me this look of of, of horror of <laughs> what kind of half-human being are you that you don't speak Chinese. Hmm. So I grew up also feeling a little bit sort of insecure I guess and 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 I didn't even know whether I needed to feel embarrassed but of about not being able to speak it but you know there were a lot of question marks in my mind about Chineseness as a concept so yeah I went in my mid-20s and as I worked in in government affairs and consulting I started digging into my family roots on the side as a hobby and that's how I basically mm-hmm. discovered the impact that it had on me. I, I went to some ancestral villages on my father and my mother's side. And I, I really felt, I had never felt such a deep impact, such a personal connection to, to myself, to history, to my, also to my parents, my, my family and my grandfather. And as I started speaking to other people about my experience, I noticed the effect that it had on them. So they asked me to help them seven
0: generations. Yep. So uh, that that I mean if you take 30 years as a generation, I mean we're talking about 200, and 200, right. 200 or more 200. years ago. We're talking about early 18th century. Uh wow, that's that's uh, quite an early departure. Wow, it's fascinating. I mean, and we'll we'll get into what you were able to find. Uh what about you, Clotilde, What what lit the fire for you?
3: Um, so I was I was born in the UK in London, but I come from a mixed background. Uh, my father's Malaysian Chinese; he's third generation Chinese Malaysian, and my father himself never really knew how to speak uh, Chinese besides a little bit of Hokkien. So growing up in the UK, besides going to eat dim sum over the weekends, there was not. There was nothing really Chinese about us. And on the flip side, um, my mom's French and we, me and my brothers were all raised as very proud French people. So I always felt closer to that side of the family. But the strange thing was I always identified myself as Chinese. So that was the cool, special thing about me that I would tell my friends. Going to a French school in the UK is not that diverse. So that was that was the cool thing that I could say about my background. And it was the same within my French family. So I think early on, I had this need to sort of bridge that gap. And I, I ended up studying Chinese at university. And while I was studying in Beijing, I thought, heck, well, while I'm here, I may as well you know go see where my my father's family used to come from so so i went on a on a backpacking trip by myself and 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 met some distant relatives and learned some really interesting stories about my great-grandfather whom i had never met and it was at that point i thought wow this is such a great a great journey more people should do this kind of thing because it really makes you feel connected and i thought oh i could i could start my own charity or company whatever that helps others retrace their roots back in china but obviously i found a company that already did that which was my china roots and the rest is history
0: Yeah, well, you know, so it's interesting. So far, both of you have had stories that are more pull than push. I mean, I imagine that for some people uh, who grew up in the Chinese diaspora, uh, they feel excluded from the society they live in, whether, you know, in Europe or in the Americas or, or wherever. And that is what makes them take an interest in their ancestry, in the country that they come from. Uh, but yeah, that's really, it seems not to have been the case with either of you. What about uh, chrislin What about you?
2: Yeah. So for me, I was born in the United States, um, but my parents were both born and raised in Malaysia. So growing up, they would always, over the summertime, bring us, quote unquote, home to Malaysia to visit family. So that's where I associate it as like my cultural, ethnic kind of home outside the U.S., not so much China, but obviously we are all ethnically Chinese and Malaysia itself, it's like a melting pot or a salad bowl of the East, as my dad likes to describe it. Um, and America as well is its own melting pot. Um. So both very multicultural in different ways. And in each of those settings, I felt very much, I, I would keenly feel how I was caught in between <laughs> and right. how like my, my my identity would shift depending on the context I was in. And so like in the US, I would feel far more Malaysian than if I was in the in Malaysia. In Malaysia, I would feel very un-Malaysian. Like <laughs> right? um, mm-hmm. my, my, my parents, they can speak, you know, five languages or dialects between the two of them. Um, but Growing up, it was more like their secret language if they wanted to, you know, talk uh, about me and my brother, <laughs> about his understanding. So, right. um, yeah, like, and, and language is a huge, you know, that's the way that you access just uh, culture, the mindset, um, being connect, be able to connect with people. So, having that barrier, um, I think, has always been kind of this undercurrent of shame or like not enoughness or whatever being Chinese is. There was always that sense of deficiency. I think. Um, And so, yeah, for me, about, I guess, a a little bit over a year now, I decided to take my leap, (laughs) similar to the others here, of wanting to take time to spend time on on the mainland, the motherland, the fatherland, China, um, and actually like build my own story, my own connection with this place versus just base it off of the stories of, you know, earlier generations. Um, I guess I have one grandfather, my mother's father, um, who was actually born and raised in China. So I got to spend some time in the fall um, to visit his village. And it was great to just close some gaps, like, wow, you know, my favorite dishes in Malaysia and like we're a huge foodie culture. Like some of these actually originated in Southern China, you know, in Fujian province. And oh, this is really where it came from. Wow. And so these parts of myself that I had separated, like, oh, China is this one, Chinese is this one part, Malaysia is this other part, America is this other part. I could just start to, you know, food as a love language, for example, that was one area where I felt those gaps start to close and be like, you know, they're not so different after all. They are connected. And I think just, I mean, for me in the U.S., I, I grew up in the Northeast in New Jersey, but I went to college in the South in North Carolina and just feeling kind of caught in between some of the racial dynamics where the narratives in the U.S. are are very literally black and white. Um, and there's still a huge underrepresentation of Asian-American history um, and migration stories in the story of America. A lot of this leap was very much driven um, or, or this, this, the push that I felt was like, I'm tired of saying like, what's not my story? Like, oh, it's not it's not that, it's not that. Yeah, but like, what right. is my story? What is our story? What's our family's story? Um, and so that kind of led me back here to try to be like, all right, like, let's try to experience this and let it actually speak to me so I can have a sense of, you know, why am I proud or glad that I'm associated with this culture um, and then invite other people into it as well.
0: Well, I'm just a stone's throw from your alma mater from Duke. just <laughs> yes. down the road here. <laughs> It's mm. funny, I'm on Main Lucky Street, you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, what strikes me is really interesting is that all three of you uh, are from diaspora, or your, your roots are in diaspora countries and not, well, originally in China, but via uh, a Southeast Asian country, either Indonesia in Hui case, or Malaysia in the case of both you, Clotilde, and, and Chris Lynn. I wonder if that's mere coincidence or, or whether that sort of interposition of an, a, another country Maybe adds to the the mystery, the allure, the, the sense of wanting to, to find out. I mean, because in the case of somebody like me, it's it's just quite direct, right? I mean, my parents were both born in China, went to Taiwan, you know, arguably another country, but maybe not. Uh, and and then you know went to the states directly, so it's, it, there's, there was no uh, there was no non Chinese country in the middle. Uh, do you think that was a factor for any of you? for me it was because
1: like i grew up with stories about indonesia and i grew up learning about indonesia but never about china so for me it was this missing link but i think if if i look at the people that we help today we get people from like wh- whose ancestors have moved twice or have migrated twice but we also have people that just came that whose ancestors came from china and they just settled in the place where the clients live today uh, so in that respect i would say it's it's quite coincidental that the three of us are from you know different places but we the thing is we have people from all ages and all backgrounds we have people that are in their early 20s working for you you mean oh sorry yeah people that we help i mean clients customers oh uh, so, okay,
0: right right yeah let's let's get into your clients i mean obviously there's a growing interest right now otherwise actually. your company Uh, wouldn't be flourishing the way that it is. Uh, Do you suppose that China's rise has been a factor in this growing interest? Uh, I mean, now China is a a pretty modern country. It's got a lot to be proud of, at least economically, if not politically. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's got, you know, uh, for for whatever reasons, people are maybe feeling more comfortable with pride in their cultural heritage. They have these sort of stirrings of these feelings of connection to China, they all of a sudden want to, you know, understand their origins there better. Is that is that a, a plausible? Theory? I think so. Yes, and maybe
1: not so much just active pride, but at least less ashamed. I mean, it's just it's just also yeah, yeah, less easier. Ashamed. I would think in addition to uh, China's rise, just simply the 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 rise of the internet uh, and the just the. Uh, barriers that have been bro- broken down in terms of just traveling to China, just uh, Googling China and just at least uh, satisfying the early stages of a curiosity and just the awareness that it's actually quite possible now to do these uh, this type of research. Uh, that's definitely contributed to
0: hmm. So, Chloe, you work on the customer side of these. So who, who are the customers? Where are most of them? Uh, what are they, you know... I'm sorry. So, Chloe, you work on the customer side. So, who are these customers? Where are most of them? And from talking to them, what are some of the things that, that motivate them? And I guess, why are so many of them women? Apparently, it's it's very heavily gendered, right? I mean, there's way more women who hmm. are taking you guys on.
3: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I can answer your last question, but but... Definitely speaking to customers is, is the favorite part of my job, precisely because we get such a broad range of people of diverse backgrounds. So the vast majority, I would say, come from the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. But we do get loads of requests as well from Southeast Asia, so places like Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, um, and, and, and quite a few as well from Central America. So the Caribbean, quite a bit from places like Jamaica, um, and, and I'm very excited to say we've, uh, just confirmed our first South American client as well. So, um, very exciting oh, cool. news. Yeah. And we get quite a few people who are, I want to say middle aged or, or, retirees who have quite a bit of spare time and, and want, want to research their heritage for the next generation. So they perhaps, Oh
0: yeah, that they makes perhaps,
3: sense. um, you know knew a little bit about where their parents or grandparents came from but but they want to just solidify that so that their kids and grandkids have have traces and have um have references to start from but we also of course get young parents who have just had kids and and are sort of questioning what kind of stories they want their own kids to inherit so yeah it's it's very interesting to come across all these different kinds of uh interests
0: I imagine that among those young parents, some of those customers uh, were probably parents of adopted children, or adoptees themselves. You know who were maybe uh, born in the in the nineties and are now into their young adulthood uh, and are very curious about it, and, and probably have approached you. Have you had many queries uh, from among these you know thousands of young girls mainly who were adopted from China?
2: Yes, we do
3: get quite a lot of those requests uh, from both adoptees and their parents who who are either european or american but but want to do this for for their children but it's very very tough in china for obviously emotional and 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 practical reasons um, and, and the, the, the institutions that you would have to contact in order to find, you know, traces of biological parents are often government institutions who either don't keep records or don't want to share the records. Right. So, so it's very, very difficult.
0: At least that is a fairly well-trodden path, right? I mean, a lot of people have, know how to do this sort of a, who were my biological parents research. I mean I imagine that's that's something that that has been going on for quite some time well before you guys got started so at least it's a well trodden path
1: that that's true but it's also for many uh adoptees uh interesting to basically just come back to China and even if we don't find the bi- biological parents just go back to the orphanage or for instance the police station that they might have been found in front of or foster parents that you know they would have ended up after the orphanage and before being adopted overseas um, a lot of that really awakens a lot of emotions too so even though finding biological yeah, yeah. parents is often challenging there is a lot of other research work that we can do that is still emotionally valuable to these adopted girls.
2: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'll add is, like, I spoke with one girl who came back where um, she was born, she she grew up in Spain and identifies as Spanish, um, feels very Spanish culturally. And yeah, and she told me when she came here, like, she didn't feel like... She necessarily wanted to be more Chinese or that being Chinese necessarily meant anything to her. Um, she was just curious and it was more of an intellectual curiosity, perhaps. Um, and afterwards, she discovered that, oh, wow, actually, the like the nurse or like the lady at the orphanage um That she was adopted from had actually wanted to adopt her but like couldn't for some reason where it was like financial so in in that moment like she kind of got to meet the woman who might have been her mother who almost was her mother who wanted to be her mother um so that was like you know unexpected and and i think you know kind of flipped that switch from being being an intellectual curiosity to being that more emotional one um that she couldn't have imagined so you you never know
0: Yeah, I've definitely found myself imagining that, that other life I might have had. You know, my parents were from kind of elite families in adjoining counties in, in the same province. And they their parents knew one another. They were both the sort of eldest siblings of, of oldest, you know, boy and oldest girl. There's that faint chance that they might have gotten married. And so I always imagined for myself like a life that might have been in China. Anyway, let's talk about how you guys do the work. I'm sure the resources that your various customers have available to them you know they they must vary pretty widely, but maybe you have a sense of, of who a notional average customer might be and what she has available as a sort of starting point like what can what what's in that box of stuff they can give you to begin
3: mm. so the main things that we always ask our customers um, to provide at the start is. Uh, the name of their ancestors or as many ancestors as they can in Chinese characters. And this is this is super important because, of course, when we go back to China and do the research, locals or distant relatives, they won't remember that person as Francis Fong or whatever his westernized name is. They will remember his Chinese name. And then the second thing that we ask for is the, the address or the name of the village, town, county, etc., that the ancestor came from in China, also in Chinese characters. So the the key challenge here, of course, is that a lot of Chinese immigrants, when they left and they went to Peru or the U.S., they would have transcribed their names depending on the dialect that they spoke, but also depending on the language that is spoken in the country of arrival. So you have different ways of romanizing names and places that can make it a bit difficult sometimes to retrace the original chinese characters. Right. So but but there are a lot of clues that most people have that they don't realize they have. For example, if their their grandparents were buried in a chinese cemetery, it's likely that there are chinese characters on the grave. So even if our clients can't read chinese, they have access to this really important clue and and chinese graves have not only the names of your ancestors but also their their hometown back in china if you're lucky so so that's the key
0: and they often have names of yeah spouses and descendants and uh, parents even. Mm, exactly yeah. uh and i'm sure everyone's got like those uh, a, a, a photo album with some sepia toned photos and sometimes they'll have you know a, a name scrawled on the back or Chinese characters appearing somewhere in in the in the photo that, that might give clues. Yes, yeah?
3: exactly. Especially because you have to remember these are our ancestors who first left China. They 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 were away in a completely foreign place, um, often with few people that they knew who spoke the same language as them, unless they really tried to seek out those areas or those Chinatowns where they could find, you know, locals to them. So so they would they would most likely have written back home and sent money back home. So if your family has kept, you know, stray envelopes or or things from that time, you could also potentially find a, a an address or names of the people that your your grandparents corresponded with and that can be a really a really good clue too.
0: Mm-hmm. And it- so there's sort of the holy grail though of genealogical research in China. Which, of course, is the the, the zupu or the Jiapu, right? Huihan, can you can you explain what these things are, and and how often are you able to actually find one that's a you know that that is of the clan or of the family that that's doing sure. The research?
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's Jiapu or zupu, they're basically clan books or family history books, and especially in the past thousand years since the Song Dynasty, families have been maintaining these books. So it's not just a rich, noble family that would keep these books. It's basically across the board, and it goes back to Confucianism, really, to it, it the value of maintaining uh, records about your ancestors, knowing who they were and respecting them that way so these books. Really, they have family trees, but not just family trees. They have sections that discuss the biographies of certain renowned ancestors. They contain histories about the village itself, uh, histories about the clan and where the clan was, where the ancestors were before they moved into the last village that the ancestors were. So it basically goes back hundreds or sometimes even thousands of years in the past.
0: Yeah, so really the Holy Grail. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so... One of the uh, the questions that we get very often is, well, hasn't everything been destroyed during the Cultural Revolution? And a lot of it, of course, has. But very importantly, in the South, there was a, a big resurgence uh, in the eighties and nineties of clans getting back together and basically elderly villagers doing doing a collective brain dump and re-establishing and republishing their clan, Zhupus and Jiapus. So that's one. Uh, Number two is also in the South, it being further removed from Beijing. There were actually a lot more of these books saved than in the North. Yeah, yeah. Number three in the South. The South has mostly in history been more, uh, I guess, valuing cultures and Chinese history than than the north in general so to answer your question you know how often does it happen that a family can still find its family book it actually happens very often and a lot more than you would think uh, our success rate is around 80% so you know that's typically uh, in the majority of cases we would be able to find it's Apple Wow that's that's impressive also to go back to your earlier question uh, about what sources are needed, what information is needed for us to be able to start research. One of the things that I'm really excited about is that the bigger we've gotten, the more overlapping family histories we've been seeing. So in essence, this means that as we grow bigger, and especially as we're now building a large scale database of these clan books online, the less information will typically be needed by clients to start research.
0: Oh, that's terrific! I, you got to tell me a little more about the digitization of or the the whole the clan book sort of archive that you're building online. We'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to ask you first. You mentioned that the the resources are richer in the south, but it also seems to me that uh, a, a huge proportion, a huge percentage of your clients actually do ancestrally come from the two provinces from Fujian and from Guangdong. So a, a lot of your work takes you down to the to southern China, to the Pearl River Delta, and to to you know the coastal uh, cities of fujian what have you learned about the circumstances and the reasons for people leaving china i mean there's some you know that are fairly obvious to a lot of people the 1849 gold rush in, in california and, and so forth uh, the, the the railroad building of the 1860s now, i remember you telling me about certain groups of of people in the diaspora who have you know real patterns of emigration uh, and in particular you you, you talked about this Cluster of, of villages uh, in southern China, where like all the Jamaican Chinese come from. <laughs> can you can you talk about the Jamaican Chinese? Sure. Yeah. So the, the
1: the issue is that basically one wouldn't pack up their whole life to just start a new life in a a, a place thousands of miles overseas if you, you just randomly, right? People would typically go where their uncle could already help them find work, uh, which means that there were established networks of people going from A to B overseas. So if, for instance, you take a look at the Chinese, people of Chinese Jamaican heritage in, let's say, Toronto, New York, and Miami, those three cities in Northern America, you'll find that they, for like 90% of those cases, they will come from an area that is of a, a 30 mile radius in modern day Shenzhen. And they will have been. Yeah. Oh, so wow. that's how migration, historic migration patterns basically evolved. They, they started at, at one place and then you know people followed one another because they could help one another in a new place. So in this particular case, uh, in a very small area in Shenzhen, people started moving to Jamaica uh, about 100 and, and more years ago. And then in the 60s and 70s, a lot of these Chinese Jamaicans, they moved, for instance, to New York, Miami, and Toronto, where they still live today. So this this migration, historical migration mapping, is one of the things that we're also very excited about and what we're doing at the moment, because, you know, again, it goes back to the point of uh, the more you map, the more people that have actually not too much information we can help.
0: So I mentioned just now that a lot of your clients are from Fujian or from Guangdong province. Uh, but... There's another uh, geography of China that, in more recent years at least, has been sending a lot of people in diaspora. A lot of uh, it's, it's, of course, Wenzhou in Zhejiang Province. Uh, I, I understand that there's more and more people sort of with Winjo roots who are now uh, taking an interest in your services, is that correct?
1: That is correct. I mean, in the beginning, when we started My China Roots, I was really focused on Fujian and Guangdong, because I figured that like me, the people most interested would be people that don't really speak Chinese anymore, and don't really know where they're from in China anymore. Uh, to our surprise, our pleasant surprise, one of the uh, another type of client does actually still know where they're from and they still speak Chinese. However, because they've migrated overseas, for them a key motivation is the next generation. So they see their kids being com- yeah, uh, completely Americanized or Dutchified or however you want to call it. And they feel, the parents feel, that it would be valuable to still transfer knowledge about, about China, where they were from. So... Yeah, the, our family websites definitely help with transferring all the awareness of roots to the next generation.
0: So, what about historical events in China that produced waves of migration? Sort of the the push, uh, like maybe the Hakka Punti wars or Taiping Rebellion. Taiping yeah. Rebellion, the chaos of the Taiping. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about uh, what you've seen, sort of historically, as events in China that that produced the biggest out migration waves
1: for sure i mean there were typically always push as well as pull factors so push factors include like you said in hakka cases the the typing rebellion like after the Taiping rebellion there was a big backlash against the hakka and like thousands many many thousands of hakka had to flee uh, the mainland but you also had a lot of instances of like floods natural disasters in in, in Guangdong and earlier also in Fujian that had, oh, right. yeah. basically poverty people were just uh, same with famines and people were so in such dire straits that they that they had to find ways overseas to make make money and, and and to survive essentially so a lot of these people they they gathered like families or villages they pooled their money and then ended up sending one or two of the younger boys, typically aged like 17, 18, 19, to go overseas and, and, and make money in order to send it back over uh, back to home. And, but you know, where where do you go? Do you just go anywhere? No, you don't just go anywhere. So there had to be pull factors. You go where your you go uncle your, was. Where your uncle was right? And your yeah. uncle went there because there was a pull factor that pulled him to a certain economic, uh, a, a certain environment that was, Uh, good to make money so basically these were environments where uh, european colonizers were and especially after the abolition of african like western and central african slavery throughout the the 19th century that slavery that labor was replaced by a lot of chinese and indian laborers so these came to be known as coolies Mm -hmm. or contract laborers so they were their, their 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 labor environment was was regul was slightly more regulated than than slaves, but still they lived in dire conditions.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean these were like, they were mining on the Guano right, Island exactly. and stuff like that, right? I mean it was pretty or awful. Tin right? mines in Malaysia,
1: horrible, rubber horrible. plantations, sugar plantations in Cuba, you name it. So those are those are pull factors. You mentioned another pull factor like the Gold Rush or the Transcontinental uh, Transcontinental Railroad uh, in North America. So, those are, yeah, they're push factors as well as pull factors that made people leave and go someplace.
0: Let's talk about what the actual product, the deliverable that you offer is. Uh, what, what is it that you end up putting into the hands of your customers? Because I found that to be really remarkable uh, beyond what I had originally expected I, and really a pretty compelling thing. Uh, can one of you talk about uh, what, what you typically deliver?
2: Yeah, so typically, um, our researchers, they will serve as the, you know, on the ground hands and feet and uh, context, you know, interpreters on behalf of the diaspora, <laughs> like our clients scattered around the world, who may not have like the means to come in person or the language, right, um, to come and understand so um basically it's whatever they're curious about and then we'll write it up um and uh, typically in a report um that will summarize uh some of the histories that we find like if we interview uh some of the villagers right in their ancestral village um or fine relatives um will conduct like oral history interviews um Will translate it, um, basically compile it, and then if they want, also contextualize it, you know, with historical events to paint this broader picture, so they can see how, you know, their families' generational migrations um, dovetailed with all those, you know, push and pull factors um, that we just discussed.
0: Yeah, that's 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 part of it that I really I, I found particularly compelling. Is that sort of this is what you know was happening in this family's world during this time? These are the the historical events that might have been sort of inflection points in in their lives. That was that was all really well done, and the writing is is gorgeous, actually. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. No, but
1: we, yeah, we feel very strongly about going beyond names and dates and telling stories. And I mean, that's how history comes to life, and that's how it becomes valuable, and that's how it gets transferred onto new generations, which we feel very strongly about too—the the, the preservation of culture and and stories.
2: Yeah, it's really all about bringing history to life. I mean, for me, I was a very poor history student I could honestly care less <laughs> um all the you know dates and everything just leaked out of my ears the moment they entered um and it was only really through fiction I think that history came to life for me and Chinese history in particular only came to life for me once I started reading like graphic novels <laughs> um that dealt with Chinese history um <laughs> really good recommendation is boxers and saints which deals with like yeah, yeah, that. yeah <laughs> um boxers opium and wars saints. and all that um So, yeah, I think our goal really is to just bring that history to life. And it's exciting because now with, you know, all the technological visualization tools that we have today, it's like right now our big challenge, our big curiosity here is... How do we take that story data and create a portal of sorts, a family portal um, that can help connect a family that's scattered around the world? Like for example, my mom is the youngest of nine children. And so our family is literally everywhere. And if, you know, one uncle has one story and another cousin who grew up with our grandparents in Malaysia has all these other stories, but then so-and-so spoke at the funeral and learned this other thing. Like, if everyone's scattered around the world, how do we have this unified space to share our data, you know, and combine our clues, combine our traces? Yeah, so like, you know, the experience of very common experience of the Roots Tracing journey when you're there in person is to just sit around a family table with your relatives and you just sit there and, he, and you know, people are talking over each other, finishing each other's sentences. Someone's like, oh, I have a photo. Let me pull it up for you. Someone's like, oh, wait, someone, you know, and, and it's, it, it's, chaos. yeah, it's, it's a blissful chaos. It's very messy and it's awesome, but it's very hard, you know, to record cleanly, right? Like imagine mm-hmm. trying to just record the audio from that, <laughs> let alone the visuals oh God, and yeah. all of that, you totally know, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the total head- <laughs> and so, right now, we're trying to figure out like, okay, what are all those data streams? What are all the possible um, ways of organizing those stories? Um- because they're they you know stories are nonlinear, too, and right now we're we're building that portal where family can just come and combine all their data, arrange it uh, around you know the ancestors they're interested in, um, connect with existing relatives, just kind of your all in one uh, family reunion <laughs> kind of table, but digitally. Oh wow,
0: that's that's super cool. So, w- what are the skill sets that you guys have to look for when you're hiring researchers? I mean, I can't imagine that there have been people dedicated to this particular profession for a, for a very long time. Uh, I mean, are they reporters, are they folklorists, are they just sort of people, you know, with good communication skills, people who can type really fast, <laughs> what, what, uh, <laughs> what do you look for? Well,
1: for the most important work, we definite, which is basically going to the villages and talking to people, I think communication skills and a passion for, for stories and, and for collecting stories is, is crucial. It doesn't really matter if they studied journalism or history or archaeology. I mean, our team has studied all of the above. But it's really most important is that they have a passion for yeah, talking to people and collecting the stories. Because there, I mean, there's just so there's so many stories and that are that are just wonderful to tell. Big stories like client stories. I mean, with with big uh, high up KMT generals that were murdered in gruesome manners, but also like smaller stories of, for instance, uh, a, a missionary great grandmother who went to Hong Kong and then fell in love, but then because of the the mix, the you know they weren't accepted because she fell in love with a Chinese cook, so they were basically. What's the word ostracized.
0: this ostracized that's yes ostracized. exactly <clears throat> I remember I, I can't remember who, which one of you I was talking to about this, but somebody suggested that there's often some um, scandal or a, a, a source of deep shame maybe that, that's the reason why an older relative is so reticent about talking about uh, his or her past in China. But also just that that people are aware of some dark secret family you know skeleton or whatever, and they uh, that's that's what sparks them to engage you guys. Uh, what are some of the more lurid things that you've you've, you've come across? Yeah, Claude, you
1: want to go? Um, I mean,
3: uh, <laughs> sure. It's <So laughs> just an endless. The, yeah. Yeah. Can, I mean, on. I mean, plenty. Uh, yeah. The the one I'm thinking of is one of our earlier clients who. Um, whose grandfather was Chinese but she was Dominican American and she didn't know very much about him and he never really spoke about his past and then through our research we discovered that his i think some of his very close family m- members his mother and one of his siblings like died of of starvation or something horrible like that oh and, god and then suddenly she thought oh you know that that makes a lot of sense you know why why he wouldn't want to stir up the past
0: oh yeah no it makes total yeah. sense oh that's awful mm-hmm. yeah
1: Or another Um, case where a great-great-grandfather had to flee the village because at age 16 he had killed another boy, uh, like a fight that had gotten out of hand and then just had to just really leave because of the, the, the inner village conflict. I mean, there are a lot of, well, there are also a lot of family conflicts, basically, where, I mean, it's often about money.
3: Yes. But, <laughs> but but also it's the case especially I think in the US where you had the Chinese exclusion act and mm there was a whole wave of people who migrated in the early 20th century as paper sons under false identities. And so because they had to lie, but they were thoroughly you know, interrogated by the immigration authorities at the time. If you look at some of these interview files, it's fascinating the, the amount of detail that these officers would ask. They'd ask them, you know, which village did you come from? How many people live there? Where is the school located? How uh, many steps know, how are many leading ha- up to your front door? <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. I mean and, and so you had to get your story straight so I think because of just the trauma of going through that experience a lot of uh, American clients come to us and they say you know my, my, my grandparents never really, never really agreed to answer our questions about, about where they came from probably because they were scared and, and it's just the repercussions of this that, that they were still feeling
1: well also let's not forget that i think chinese parents in general are pretty bad at talking about emotions and the softer side of of things
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's yeah. a yeah it no, is it is a stereotype right. but but uh, it's it's hard to say <laughs> yeah.
0: mm. well we're not sure though whether that's actually genetic um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of genetic sure you had to know I was going to ask this. What about DNA? I mean, there are all these services available now. I mean, from you know, I think they're they're quite popular from what I've heard in China. Uh, my wife actually says that they offer a whole ton more specificity about you know, geographies within China. I mean, you do like Ancestry DNA or Twenty Three and Me, and it'll tell you like you're ninety seven percent East Asian. Oh, Ooh. yay! That that really helps. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Not not super helpful. Uh, presumably, you guys could learn an awful lot if you you know d- did that. Can you comment on uh, what your plans are for integrating or or, or for partnering with companies sure. that do use DNA sequencing, and and what are some of the challenges around this uh, in China?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, DNA is. Uh, we're now in the preparatory phases of setting up our DNA services. You just mentioned Ancestry DNA, and we're very happy to have one of the key people that actually built up Ancestry DNA as one of our hands on strategic advisors in order to basically advise us on how to set up DNA services, but then in the Chinese context. So we're in talks with some libra- uh, laboratories and um yeah hopefully next year uh it will be good to have another chat on uh, the Cineca podcast so we can really launch our services then
2: <laughs>
0: yeah you guys will have to actually do mine you know for free so that i can find no out no worries uh, <laughs> I mean, i'll i'll talk to the manager uncover all these these new lies that i've i've i was told for so long that I was descended from this particular Tong general and just from a, my own cursory investigations, it turns out to be completely untrue. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, tell me more about where the company is right now. So what are, what's your head count at? Um, how many of these cases are you able to take on, you know, like in a given quarter? Sure. So we
1: have two offices in Beijing and Guangzhou and then we also have people in London, Paris and Hong Kong. So we totally, we have a team of 11 Full timers and then six part timers.
0: Oh wow, it's really small. Yeah, yeah. it's like our company. It's <laughs> uh,
1: yes. Uh, I'm happy to say that we're really growing, though, especially in the past two years. Uh, things have really taken off in terms of clientele, in terms of operations, and uh, in the past two years, we've worked on an online database so to exponentially scale up the people that we can reach out to and help. So so far, the what we've been talking about so far is uh, clients that we help on a very customized basis so we we actually send people our researchers go to ancestral villages, collect all the traces, et cetera et cetera but now what we're doing is we're putting all those da- uh, traces in a database that people can search for
0: and presumably the the pricing structure would be different for exactly Disney, but so, right now for this for for these sort of custom jobs, what does it typically cost what what would it what would it set you back if you wanted to do a deep dive into your family ancestry in Guangzhou or Guangdong or in, in Fujian I mean
1: for pure research it would typically average out to around 2000 US but important to say is that we have a success fee and a base fee mechanism, and that it, that is designed to lower the risk on the client side if we don't find anything. So basically, clients pay off okay. uh, start off with paying a lower amount, and then if we the more we find, basically the higher the bill. But on average, it would come down to around two thousand for research, and then depending on.
0: That seems very reasonable. It is. It's
1: extremely reasonable. And then if they want to have a report form either through in, in, in the way of a family website that Kristen was mentioning earlier, that will add another probably
0: 2,000 US. You set up something like that and then they could then add, I mean, they're sort of the user-generated portion of it, like you, you on that family portal, some cousin of yours can chime in with a story and post it directly to the site or is that how it works or upload photos yes
1: definitely so what we're building now is an okay. online platform that consists of two parts one is a database and the database consists of data that we digitize and upload but with time it will also consist more and more of user generated data so exactly if you have your own family website then you can invite your aunt because you know that she knows more about your great-grandfather and he might she might have pictures and so basically it's a uh, It's a uh, concerted effort of of, of all uh, family members and users. And the second part of the online platform is family websites. So if people want to save, share, curate data that they find in our database, they
0: can do so on very beautifully designed family websites. That's terrific maybe just to, to wind up here you could walk through a couple of of your client cases uh, ahead of our conversation I'd ask you guys to to dig up some um, you know clients who are willing to have their own research discussed by you you know whether by name or anonymously either case but uh, on on this podcast so uh, do you have one or two that you might be able to take us through just sort of the broad brush outlines of what went into it and maybe uh, a, a little bit of that that lovely prose I was talking about with the the tableau describing the the context of their lives
1: yeah okay so so essentially what we do for clients is we go to the ancestral villages and collect all the traces that are left right so these the two of the key traces are a, a diapo or a zuppu and b what they call a gazetteer uh, because in ga- county gazetteers there's a lot of information about the local environment so what we what we're good at doing is combining the personal history that is saved in Tiapu and Zupu and combine it with things that we know have taken place in that town, village, county. So for instance, we can then say if we know that your grand great-grandfather was born in 1880 in a particular village in Guangdong, well, you know, what flood was there when he was nine, and that basically killed 200 people, and made you know the whole village uh, help to re- reconstruct the village in, uh, for months
0: afterwards. Again, um, get- basically, which which horseman was riding through? Yeah, town, get, well, which <laughs> of the four horsemen? Right? <laughs> Yeah, but but for you, you
1: mentioned earlier things like the Taiping Rebellion, the Hakapunti Wars. These gazetteers have information about you know the extent to which a particular town was affected by, for instance, Taiping rebels or or other cases of social unrest. Uh, it also, for instance, economically, you know what are the key crops that were uh, harvested in that area? What were the periods of of, of sowing and harvesting? Uh, so it's it's goes to a very granular level and we like to see our reports and our family websites as timelines so it, be, it really allows you to go back in time and through the lens of your ancestors see and, and witness what was going on uh, in 1900, 1800 1700 going back like many many centuries
0: and um, wow you know you guys should do like a VR representation of the, the ancestral well, village <laughs> in, a, in a certain that, date that would it, be so. It cool. is. <laughs> yeah, it well, would that, be so cool. <laughs> it's on our list. Well, that would be. It will be very cool. <laughs> yes. I mean,
1: what we're already working on is 360 degree footage of 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 villages. Because another thing that is really important to mention is. Uh, the fact that because of urbanization and industrialization, a lot of the vi- villages are literally disappearing. I, I had the good fortune right. to visit one of my, basically my mom's ancestral, my mom's ancestral village in Fujian, but today it's over. It's completely gone. There's just nothing left. Oh wow! There was a beautiful ancestral hall. There were tombstones on on a hill. It was very picturesque and beautiful, and now it's just gone because of industrialization. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and local development. So what we feel strongly about is preserving uh, these cultural treasures, because we you know we, we wouldn't want to stop even economic development if, if we could. But we, what we can do is to preserve cultural heritage online and to let it live on virtually. So this is exactly what we do. You just mentioned VR. What we are designing is in our database for people to be able to visit their ancestral village virtually. So long distance, uh, with the help of 360 footage and uh, tools like Google Earth, but then in a using a
0: different software. I can't wait to see all that. That'll be mm-hmm. um, amazing. Uh, Claude, did you did you find a passage maybe that you you, you wanna-
3: yes, definitely. So one of the clients we've done quite a lot of work for is uh, American Chinese, and he had done quite a bit of research already, and he knew the stories of his. Uh, I think it's from his great great grandfather who first migrated to the u s um during the um uh, for the to for the building of the transcontinental railroad and the interesting thing about this client mm-hmm. is that he had three generations of men who all went to the u s so leaving their wife back in China and they just went to make money for the family in the u s and so through the use of gazetteers and after conducting loads of interviews with villagers in China, we, we learned about loads of stories that, of things that had been happening back in the village while they were away. So we also learned about the other side of the story. And that kind of comes back to this idea of, you know, picturing what might have happened if they had stayed uh, or, or, or if, yeah, if they had all stayed and then their descendants had stayed as well. And in his, in his case, I think we learned quite a bit about his grandmother, who had been left in the village in the early 20th century. And it was quite a risky time, I mean, in Kaiping, which is one of the key counties that a lot of overseas Chinese come from, because you had a lot of rebels. And of course, then there was the Japanese invasion. So she was there through a lot of that. And then after the communists took over, she was also there during the Great Leap Forward but when that started, she escaped to Hong Kong. So we learned about all these things that he didn't necessarily know about his grandmother, even that's more re- even if that was more of a recent story. But yes, the most, the most interesting thing really was, was that three generations of his ancestors had all gone by themselves to the U.S., leaving wife and kids back home. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that was actually not, not untypical, though, for, at that time. So sort of the pattern, and it, weirdly, it even persisted in a, in a way in uh, San Francisco Chinatowns, where a, a lot of men would go back to their village and take a wife. And not necessarily even bring her over until she was pregnant. Exactly. At which point they would bring her <laughs> so, over. So, <laughs> right.
3: and you'd have entire villages who were sort of inhabited by by these uh, wives who who had been entrusted basically with looking after their husbands' parents, and and they may have only spent a total of two years with their husbands in their entire life. So it's a little bit sad. <laughs> it's
0: a lot of bit sad. Huh?
3: It's, it's quite sad. But it also gave rise to a lot of kind of funny situations. For example, I think in, in Kaiping specifically, where this one client was from, they had this special custom in which when the groom could not be present, because he was trying to make money somewhere on the other side of the ocean, you could have a cockerel stand a in proxy. as a proxy. Yes. So the bride would actually marry a rooster instead of a person (laughs) so it's completely absurd
2: but that did happen
0: there's a terrible (laughs) joke that one could make about that but
2: But then the idea of like a stand-in like in the absence of someone it, it does take on like a very symbolic significance sometimes like there was one client Um, like Canadian Chinese, she went back to her grandfather's village um, and discovered like this whole building where they store the ashes of people in in jars. Um, And her grandfather had migrated to North America, but they had a a jar for him, like symbolically for his ashes. So even though he never came back, they were like, you know, there's still a place for you here. Oh, wow. Um, So that was very moving for her. (laughs) That's something very particular in in China is that
3: the idea when these people left all those years ago, the idea was always that they would return. So it's almost natural that we, as descendants, would want to find out where we come from and find our roots. Um, and and it's natural to have an ancestral tablet or an urn that has the symbolic ashes of of our ancestors still there.
0: You know, I, I'm getting this real distinct sense that that you're not just a genealogical service, that but you're really playing a role in cultural heritage preservation. And that's that's a really great thing about this company.
3: We like to think so.
0: <laughs> it's really cool what you're doing. I, I love it. And we need to tell our listeners what they can do if they're interested in, in, in engaging your services. Where can they find you online? Sure. Anybody
1: that's interested to hear more, go to www.mychinaroots.com. And anybody that's interested in partnering on a more long-term basis... Uh, We are currently raising a second angel round to build our mature platform and our our database. So let us know. Basically, you can
0: uh, find all our contact information on our website. Okay, Kuihan, that's great. Kuihan Li, Chrislin chu and Clotilde Yap, thank you so much, all three of you taking the time to chat about this. Uh, it's fascinating what you do. And uh, I think Ming and Qing historians who don't land tenure-track jobs, <laughs> uh, maybe this is a, kind of a line of work that you might take an interest <laughs> well, in. Well, uh, not, not really just good. Ming
1: and Qing historians, right, just anybody interested in stories, but also now that we're working on the database, basically software engineers, big data, as well as AI Oh, yeah. uh, people with an AI background we're looking now to re- uh, recruit those types of people because we are looking into pattern recognition of these dupus of cemetery records so anybody in big big data or AI come find us <laughs>
0: so let's move on now to recommendations but before we do I want to remind listeners that the cynical podcast is powered by Sup China, the best thing you can do if you like the work that we're doing for this podcast or any of the other shows in the network is to sign up for our Sub China Access membership for just eight dollars and eighty-eight cents a month. Uh, you get a daily in-depth newsletter that's a roundup of all the big China news. Plus, you get access to our Slack channel. Uh, you get discounts to our big conferences and free admission to events like our monthly live podcast in New York. Okay, so now on to recommendations. Since Jeremy is not here, why don't we start with Clotilda and then Chris Lin and then Huihan. And then I will go last. So, Chloe, you are up. What do you got?
3: Mm. Uh, So, I'm a massive foodie. And in my free time to relax, I love to try and cook Chinese dishes that I used to eat all the time in China. And I found this great food blog that I've been using a lot to cook all of the classic uh, Chinese foods that I love so much. It's called The Omnivore's Cookbook. And it's great. The author is from Beijing and her recipes are really clear, really easy to follow totally advertising for her but
0: (laughs) oh wow that's great you know what I just got Fuchsia Dunlop so I just got a, a galley copy of the new Fuchsia Dunlop book which is an update uh, to her classic book on on Citron cooking, mm. and so I've just this morning over breakfast I was studying one of her recipes, which I am going to attempt to execute tonight. Well my wife's not home, so that if I screw it up too badly, she won't. <laughs> I, I'm not like a cookbook person; I just usually just wing it. But I'm 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 gonna try it the way that Fuchsia suggests, mm. and we're gonna we're planning on having her on the show, when she's through uh, the states on book tour. So that's great. The Omnivores Cook the Omnivores, I'm sorry. The what?
3: Omnivores Cookbook.
0: Oh, the Omnivores Cookbook. Okay, and it's an online blog. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, that's the reason why I keep an iPad in the kitchen. <laughs> okay, Chris Lynn, what do you have for us?
2: I'm a huge story nerd, and so my recommendation is tvtropes.com. It's like a Wikipedia for all narrative junkies out there. Um, for me. I even though I'm my background is in you know video production and film and all these things I've actually seen very few I've watched very few movies because for me a movie is more than just two to three hours it's like at least an eight to 10 hour commitment because once I'm done watching the movie I have to go and like consume every single behind the scenes thing every alternate you know plot Mm -hmm. they considered like every analysis of this alternate people they considered blah 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 Um, And I just get so sucked into the world. And if you go on TV Tropes, literally, like, any story, movie, whatever, genre um, of story that you can think of, it's brilliantly uh, with, like, a wicked wit kind of dissected and organized for you. Uh, So you can just go and binge and feed your craving to know what happens to your characters or what might have happened if, you know, someone else was cast in Pulp Fiction or every single spoiler. or It's just (laughs) all there. Um, So that's my, like... Whatever black hole <laughs> that I get sucked into. Oh yeah, that's a,
0: black, that's a r- serious rabbit hole. I, I found myself doing the same thing, and it's dangerous. I mean, I I try to watch a movie and not hit pause and use X-ray on on Amazon Prime or you know I always have like Wikipedia open while I'm watching anything, so I'm always stopping. But I, I have this terrible habit of spoiling myself, like reading the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's anyway. Uh, and I, I, <laughs> I, I watched a movie last night. Actually, I stayed up kind of late and watched "Always Be My Maybe," which was pretty mm. good. I have to say, is you know, yeah, it was pretty was good. Numb, numb. Yeah, the yeah. new one with uh, uh, yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, Ali Wong and 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 yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. That's fun. That's
2: awesome. Go look it up on TV trips.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I might do that. Might really well. Okay Wei Okay, what do you have for us?
1: Well, when I'm not working on any roots-related things or pretending to be a hyena or a cobra or a dinosaur with my two very young kids, um, music is my thing. <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a drummer, a jazz drummer. So oh, yeah, wow. when you ask me about recommendations, the first thing that comes came to my mind is uh, is Haitian fight song by Charles Mingus. So uh, it has absolutely. Nothing to do with uh, with what we've, we've been talking about, but it's just no. The most that's great. No, I, I, it,
0: yeah. Do you I, know it? I mean, I listen to a lot of jazz. Uh, I don't. I'm not as fanatical as I ought to be, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. No, it's one genre of music that my wife lets me play at all hours, at any time, and she's she's completely you know. So oh, yeah, I, nice. I've been. I like your wife. Raiding vinyl stores and finding good old old pressings of. Jazz Classics, I'll keep an eye out for more Mingus. So, Haitian Fight Song, huh?
1: Haitian Fight Song, yeah. It's the most intense, greasy, fat, ugly, just in-your-face music playing. Nice. Yeah, combining history and future into a beautiful story,
0: basically. Wow. I'm going (laughs) to make a musical recommendation, too. So, um, if you're in China this summer, keep an eye out for this great band from Richmond, Virginia. They're heading to... The the PRC to play a whole bunch of shows in in you know cities all over the place. I I, I took a look at their their tour and it's like twenty something cities. It's pretty great. They're called Colin Phils, like you know an in, inversion of Phil Collins. Colin okay. Fills, and it's kind of a weird name. Uh, but I, I saw them the other night here in Chapel Hill uh, at the Cave. Uh, they met actually while teaching English in Seoul, and then they all relocated to Shenzhen. So they were in Shenzhen for like a year. Uh, and they all went back to the states a couple of years ago. Uh, they they self fund these tours of China where they've been really really well received and and not surprisingly because these guys are consummate musicians. I mean they are nice. like the the drummer he studied you know drums that's, that's he's a classical percussionist and he's just a, a killer on a kit drum. Uh, okay. They have really apple chops but they put them to work uh, in the service of really good songs and it's weird because they have kind of an indie feel to them but they're they're you know unlike a lot of indie they actually know how to play their instruments (laughs) but they're not they're not just showing off um they're one of those rare bands that i think musicians would really love but so too will have you know no idea at all about chord progressions or modes or time signatures um they're they're playing all over china in 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 july so check them out colin fills curious definitely they're gonna be at this at school really good really really great outfit so, are there some School reverse Phil
1: Collins influence there?
0: You know, the funny thing is, they he he professes a completely unironic appreciation, and you know, as do I. Oh, for for yeah, for Genesis, okay. but, for uh, Gen yeah Genesis, yeah, of course, gen- early yeah, Genesis yeah. yeah Genesis, and also you know, I I played him. They all came over to my house the other night. Uh, I played him Brand X, uh, and yeah, if you yeah, have yeah, not, yeah. Heard, yeah. If not heard, if you've not heard Brand X, it's just the most yes. amazing seventies fusion band. Uh, yeah. You're into stuff like that, anyway. Uh, yeah, sort of an addendum recommendation. The brand, the uh, band, Brand X. Phil Collins, killer guitarist named John G- Goodzall, I think is his name, John Goodzall, and then Percy Jones, who plays a lot of fretless bass. And okay, it's just a amazing, amazing combo. Oh no, now
1: I'm curious. All okay. right, guys, hey, check them out. Thank
0: you so much. What a what a what a fun conversation. Uh, and I really encourage anyone to check out your website and to see what you guys are doing. Uh, so thanks once again. Thank thanks you. for having us.
2: Thanks so
3: much, Kaiser.
0: Uh, thank you all. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk and our two shows focused on women, New Voices and Ta for Ta. Oh, and don't forget the Middle Earth Podcast, an excellent show on the culture industry in China. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.